Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello there, history friends. You are listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project. More specifically, the second profile episode of Georges Clemenceau. If you have no idea who Georges Clemenceau is, or what the Versailles Anniversary Project is, then hey, maybe check out the earlier episodes. If you are really ready for me to get into this, though, then thanks very much for joining. But of course, as is customary, I have to tell you what this episode is brought to you by. You may be unsurprised to learn it is brought to you by the Delegation Game. We are pushing the Delegation Game all over the interweb, but especially through this podcast, because I believe the Delegation Game is something that everyone can enjoy and that everyone can be excited about. So far, lots of people have signed up. I think we're currently at 11 people, so that is cool because I didn't even know if it would take off, and it really has. Our Patreon has also increased, which is very nice. And it's great to see. A lot of people have sent me some really wild, out-there scenarios and avatars, which makes me very, very happy. It seems like this may just be the spark that I needed to kind of revitalize the Patreon and, well, connect more with my patrons in general. People are getting very excited about it and telling me that they want to be everything from a really resentful Hungarian to a socialist German to a Ponzi New Englander to a patriotic Canadian to a Japanese guy. So, so everyone is all over the place, and these ingredients will all add up to an absolutely fantastic game once this launches on the 18th of January. You can still take part absolutely after the 18th of January, but the first 20 people will have the most influence, because as far as I'm concerned, that's how it would work in real life. So if you would like to join the delegation game, it costs $6 a month, which considering the amount of work I think it will take, seems fair enough to me. It's almost like a pay-to-play version of a fantasy booking or Dungeons and Dragons or that kind of thing. For six months, we will be at the Paris Peace Conference making our own alternative path at the same time as actually bringing you what really happened. So 
don't you worry. The episodes will be coming out every single Friday. If you're aware of what we're doing at this very moment in time, then you'll see we even launched a new graphic in line with it. You can visit the section of the website that talks all about the delegation game by going to wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game or clicking the link in the description below. Other than that, thanks so much for listening and for supporting this podcast. Remember, of course, the best way to support is just to tell someone, whether that be in person or by sharing stuff that we do over the internet. Through Twitter, at WDF Podcast, the Facebook page, When Diplomacy Fails Podcast, or the Facebook group, When Diplomacy Fails Podcast Group, or maybe just When Diplomacy Fails Group. Not exactly sure in the detail. Either way, super easy to find, full of lovely history friends and nerds just like yourself, and we'll be eager to welcome you once you join up. Anyway, before we ramble any further, let's get into this episode. Listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, Episode 7. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, and delegates as well, to our second Georges Clemenceau profile episode. Last time we set the scene in France and we followed the career of George through the turbulent years in office and then in semi retirement before the eruption of the Great War. The war brought an opportunity for Clemenceau to sharpen his pen and attack his rivals, but it also imbued within the 70-year-old a sense of purpose and patriotism which he almost could not contain. In this episode, we conclude this story by analysing Clemenceau's rise to the top of the greasy pole in France once again, and we assess his policies and behaviour when in this position, and whether his contributions towards the war effort were as significant as is sometimes imagined. Furthermore, we will spend a bit of time examining Clemenceau's vision, for a post-war France, and where this fit in with his peers. If you're ready then, let's get into this. I will now take you to wartime France. The Great War awakened something euphoric within Georges Clemenceau, as much as it did within France itself. Possessing as he did a brilliant medium for getting his message across in his newspaper, The Free Man, at least until it was censored and became The Chained Man, Clemenceau recorded the first of many thoughts on the war and how it would improve his country. He wrote, From the blind confusion of factional strife, the Frenchman has emerged in this hour all of a piece throughout, stronger, more resolute, silent, smiling, his eyes bright with an invincible fire, which affirms that the legend of France shall not fail. It is in that mysterious hour when something comes to birth in us which burns out the dross and clears the way for the casting of a metal which neither steel nor diamond can scratch. And when, some day after superhuman efforts, all these souls, fatigued with heroism, meet again under the vast blue vault of a regenerated fatherland, 
it must be that of so many hearts which were sundered, a soul of France will forge itself, and the discords which are a condition of life will dissolve, fused in a bond of solidarity so closely knit that nothing will have the power to shatter it. Indeed, Clemenceau was as proud of his countrymen's stand and courage as he was relieved that they had the stomach to fight. He had long feared that the degradation of the French character had proceeded unchecked since the loss of 1871, and that Frenchmen born after that loss would not know how to fight or would prefer to oppose the war rather than stand for the nation. Thus, he let it be known how much he admired the willing sacrifice of young Frenchmen everywhere. The man who deliberately sacrifices all his social advantages of the moment, even the welfare of those dearest to him, in obedience to his conscience, is a hero whose courage cannot be surpassed, but it may be equalled, for there remains the idea of military courage, inviolate in its beauty and austerity. Is it not the greatest sacrifice of all to give oneself completely to a noble cause? And how could the sacrifice be more complete than when it is offered in the flower of youth, when all the senses respond with trembling initiative to the radiant procession of hopes, whose secret the adolescent does not yet possess. He believes, he aspires, he anticipates. Whatever life may bring him, this is a sacred moment, the more beautiful in its promises because it lacks the deficits of reality. Everything awakens, everything sings, everything beckons to life, and all this dream of a fragile beauty, and all this dream of fragile beauty, more precious than the untested truth of things, the young man will be asked to fling into the abyss because someone's more imperative than all others has so decreed. Clemenceau's fears, his charged criticism of pre-war governments, and his subsequent criticism of the wartime government, bring forward something of the uniqueness of the man's character. While he rejoiced initially at the task in front of him, this rejoicing quickly gave way to old habits, as Clemenceau made use of his organ to make his presence felt once more. In fact, he was one of the few French statesmen who consistently criticised the French government, not because it was at war, but because it was fighting the war ineffectively. Using the platform of his newspaper, Clemenceau penned acidic articles criticising the wartime government, which he had actually been asked to join on the 2nd of August, 1914, but had refused. Clemenceau's paper benefited from the war's circumstances, as readers hungry for information sought his paper out. The freedman's circulation, estimated at over 100,000, became much healthier than before the war. Interestingly though, Clemenceau was in the same boat as everyone else, where access to information was concerned, which is to say that during the first few weeks of the war, Clemenceau had virtually no information, and he could only print rhetorical exhortations. For a time, these expressive articles containing much emotion but little information or substance were ignored by the government, but by September 1914, Clemenceau's bitter attacks on the authorities began. One article in particular from the 28th of September, which attacked the inadequacy of the French army's medical services, after Clemenceau had been horrified at the sight of a train full of uncared-for, wounded soldiers, led to the banning of Clemenceau's paper by the government when he refused to make cuts demanded by the censor. It was after this incident that he renamed his paper The Chained Man. I'm going to save you the embarrassment of trying to hear me pronounce the French version of that name. From late September 1914 onwards then, Clemenceau managed to cement his profile as the most significant pro-war French statesman who was willing to give vent to the French people's criticism of how the war was being fought. The lack of medical services was a frequent theme, as was the inadequate supply of munitions, something which, if you know your World War I history, several other states also suffered from. If allowed, he was also prepared to criticise the general conduct of the war, though he generally focused on specifics. So successful was Clemenceau's organ in this regard, that its criticisms were actually picked up and quoted by La Gazette de Ardennes, the German-controlled newspaper published in occupied territory. Clemenceau may well have been horrified that the enemy was making capital out of his work, but if he was aware of this, it did not stop him writing. His articles were frequently censored, but Clemenceau evaded this to some extent by printing the censored passages and sending them by post to his subscribers and to senators, deputies and other people in political circles. Meanwhile, as the war progressed, Clemenceau saw men that he despised take up the premiership. The circumstances which pressed against France did not dissuade Clemenceau from following his gut and attacking what he saw as incompetence and disorganisation. It was a happy coincidence that it scored him some political points along the way.
However, just because he acted in this way, we should not imagine that Clemenceau was the man with all the answers. His critics would have insisted that Clemenceau simply shouted the loudest, with no clear vision as to how to solve the problems which he took such apparent glee in unearthing for his readership. Raymond Poincaré, the French president, and a man who took the war with Germany as a personal mission, being a boy when the Germans marched through Alsace-Lorraine, considered Clemenceau one of his worst political enemies. He spoke with the hatred and violent incoherence of a man who had completely lost control of himself, and with the fury of a disillusioned patriot who thought that he alone could bring victory. Poincaré recalled of the meeting he had had with Clemenceau in late August 1914. He added that Clemenceau could not sleep and was living on drugs. Yet the old man still toiled away in articles, which insisted almost daily on the need to expel the German invader from French territory. Clemenceau expressed this viewpoint of expelling the German invader as though he had been the first to imagine it, and as though it was as simple as walking to the German trenches and ejecting the soldiery from their positions. Of course, the French would have agreed with Clemenceau that liberating French territory from the Germans was a priority, but most accepted that it was not so simple as Clemenceau seemed to suggest, and if a solution had readily been available, it would of course have been adopted. Most would have trusted the government to find the easy solution if it did exist, but Clemenceau did not. Instead, he launched relentless attacks on the stupidity and incompetence of all those in authority, which only exacerbated the unfavourable impressions which some of his peers had of him as a man totally obsessed by unwarranted confidence in his own abilities and lacking an understanding of the difficulties faced by the government of the moment. Clemenceau was also happy to elaborate in private conversation, which ensured that negative impressions of Clemenceau's radicalism and ignorant criticism were rapidly circulated around the political elite. As these impressions grew, so did the number of influential people who had reason to dislike the thought of another Clemenceau ministry. According to the complexities of French politics, where the French premier and president had to get along, Clemenceau would never see power so long as Poincaré remained president, and there was unlikely to be a new president during wartime, lest this cripple the French war effort. The right and segments of the political left had fallen in line with the French government, with strikes called off, support pledged and cooperation being the order of the day until the war was over. Clemenceau, it seemed, never got this memo, and as a result of his intransigence, the picture of Clemenceau in France was far from favourable. To fight the Great War and to win it, the Second French Republic suffered terribly. The pain inflicted upon Germany came at an immense price, and the price was proportionally higher than the losses suffered by any other Allied power. France would mobilise 8 million men to fight the war, in addition to the nearly 800,000 which had already been mobilised as a standing army in the pre-war years. Of this number, some 1.4 million were killed outright, and another 4.3 million would be wounded to varying degrees. So out of this 4.3 million, 1.1 million would be permanently disabled, 300,000 mutilated beyond the capabilities of science, 42,000 would be blinded, and 15,000 had their faces broken, misaligned and destroyed by wounds suffered. The disfigured and mentally destroyed were permanent gruesome reminders of the losses which France had endured, as were the 700,000 widows and over 1 million orphans that now had to depend on the state more than ever. At least 80,000 French colonial soldiers were also killed, with many dying in France as they had been shipped across the Mediterranean in the early years of the war. This meant that 52% of the men that France mobilised became a casualty of some kind. This is the equivalent of one man in 20, with 1914 being by far the bloodiest year of the war. France lost an average of 2,200 men killed per day in that first year of the war. This figure was underlined in all its terrible glory during the Battle of Charleroi, when on the 22nd of August 1914, 27,000 French soldiers died in a single day. More, by my estimation, than any other battle on any side during the First World War, even the Somme. French soldiers in the younger age bracket suffered terribly, with nearly 40% of all soldiers aged between 19 to 22 killed during the course of the war. As their accompanying song to their death march, French soldiers fired more than 330 million shells during the war and sent over 2 million letters every day on average. In the Artois Offensive of May and June 1915, 
France lost a haunting 300,000 casualties for just four kilometres worth of advancement. On top of all these distressing statistics, a further 540,000 men were missing or were taken prisoner over the course of the war, while others were literally blown to pieces, their bodies turned to mist by the pulverising effects of constant artillery bombardment, the most lethal killer of the war by far, by the way. There are no words we can use. There are no words that exist to describe what France lost during the Great War. It had never been imagined that Frenchmen would have to describe war on this scale, with such terrible consequences and so few actual, tangible benefits. The horrific scenes which accompanied the first month of the war were also in sharp contrast to the sense of adventure and patriotism that had accompanied the first trainloads of enthusiastic young soldiers and conscripts. Here now was the chance to avenge 1871, to fight for the motherland and to take back the lost provinces. All Frenchmen had to do was attack, to maintain the momentum of the offensive, to rely on the French élan, and the enemy would be sent flying off balance. Calling so many millions to the colours and sending them hurriedly to plug the gaps in the French line which the German advance had exposed, it was only inevitable that casualties would follow, but it was the scale of these losses that shook French statesmen and soldier alike to their core. An average of 900 Frenchmen died every single day during the Great War, a figure which defies the human imagination required to place it in context. So bad were these scenes, so completely overwhelmed both emotionally and materially were the medics on the ground by the volume of their work that the truth had to be hidden, it was believed, for the sake of the country's morale. When George Clemenceau rallied against that belief and insisted on telling the truth as it stood, no matter how stark or painful, he singled himself out as a shrill figure who did not understand the realities of the situation facing the beleaguered republic. As was generally the case with Clemenceau, though, his unflattering surface behaviour masked humane concerns which swirled and boiled deep down within him. They moved him to work and to agitate almost to the point of illness because he did not believe the government was doing enough to protect its fighting men, because the government had not seen the great catastrophe coming, because the government did not seem to have answers to the most pressing questions of the day, because the solution adopted by so many French generals seemed to resort to throwing brave men at impregnable positions. Such indescribable horrors could not be ignored by Clemenceau. He could not convince himself that the government and generals were doing all they could to limit the casualties and win the war. He viewed the general staff as careless and tactless, though he had no idea himself how to fight a war or what victory actually entailed. His criticism, though it was devoid of solution, was not based merely on opportunism and was not devoid of compassion or concern. Clemenceau hated the way France fought the war because he believed that there must be a better way. He simply did not know what that better way was. He could not bring himself to accept that, notwithstanding some avoidable blunders, the carnage of the Western Front was inevitable for the simple fact that generals were making use of new technology with outdated tactics. It would take some time for Allied and German commanders to learn new lessons, but until they did, the cult of the offensive permeated military thinking. And this, combined with the merciless new technology, enabled the Germans to defeat French armies which came to them in vast, difficult-to-organise hordes. Had the French command sat back and waited, had they possessed the foresight to dig sophisticated systems of fortified trenches and bunkers along the German border, or build more than they actually did build in the end, then the Germans would never have been able to advance as far as they did in the opening weeks of the war. Consequently, this lesson would be internalised after the Great War and brought too far to its conclusion in time for the Second World War, when the French relied too heavily on their Maginot Line and proved reluctant, almost to the point of anxiety, to advance into Nazi Germany for the express purpose of avoiding the kinds of casualties which had characterised the early months of the Great War. The French, in 1940, did not want to repeat the experience of 1914. Few visionaries existed in the high command of either side, and so long as initiative and ingenuity was in short supply, bravery and sacrificial courage would have to do, but it would only go so far. Clemenceau was one of the first individuals to lend his voice in criticising the initial manoeuvres, because he believed that war should not have exacted such a high price. In purely demographic terms alone, 
France would be bled white within a few years if the front was not stabilised. Should the war come down to a simple contest in manpower reserves on the Western Front, it was impossible to imagine the smaller French population winning in the long run. For this reason, if for nothing else, Clemenceau was determined that matters had to change. France should lean on her allies, Britain and Russia, and Japan if necessary, and the burden should be shared. In the meantime, the proper processes of democracy should continue, and the government should be held to account for its failures. Otherwise, change would not be instituted, and the blunders would continue unchecked. As Geoffrey Brune appreciated, the blunders stumbled into by a reeling French command were not problems exclusive to the French experience. Brune wrote, The one truth which emerged starkly in every country was that the generals and the politicians would pass the blame back and forth glibly, while the infantry paid with their lives for the cannon which had not been cast, the machine guns which were never delivered, the shells with defective fuses, the grenades which failed to arrive. Nor did they suffer less dearly from the ideological rigidity of theorists who fought their battles on paper and ordered infantry advances across quivering quagmires and through impenetrable thickets which would have been all but impassable even without an enemy to defend them. It is impossible to appreciate the sense of urgency and mission felt by French delegates and by Georges Clemenceau at the Paris Peace Conference, and it's also impossible to understand the Treaty of Versailles itself, unless we first understand where the French were coming from and what they had been through. And what they had been through and where they were coming from was a really horrific patchwork of awful experiences, terrible losses, and a burning, seething desire to make things right because of this. The sheer unimaginable pain of fighting a total war for four long years in their own country, as so many towns and so much countryside was torn apart, not to mention civilians murdered and livelihoods destroyed, must be juxtaposed with Clemenceau's behaviour when hammering out the peace. Could we ever understand the pain that man felt when he ventured to speak and act for France's interests during the Versailles negotiations? Of all the powers gathered at Versailles and to hammer out that treaty in the Paris Peace Conference, only France had suffered such apocalyptic losses on her own land. Clemenceau had seen it all. He had lived through the initial phases of patriotic euphoria and taken part in it as well, the middling period of suspicion and anger at the government, the sense of depression and gloom and impatience over the question of when it was ever going to end, the crippling doubts that France could actually bring enough power to bear against Germany to win, and the exhausted sighs of relief which followed the news that, in fact, the miracle had continued and the Republic had been saved. France limped over the finish line. It is often taken so much for granted that France suffered, that Clemenceau represented this suffering, and he attempted to vocalise it when among the Allies, and that he had a real chip on his shoulder because of it. Too quickly, though, we take that all for granted, and we're led to criticise Clemenceau without really attempting to understand him or his position. This is because, of course, it is so much easier to criticise the man without having to first consider his pain or whether his position might have been legitimate. Did the hideous losses suffered by France actually legitimise what Clemenceau asked for at the peace negotiations? It was more than simply a question of whether 1.4 million deaths vindicated demands for tougher peace measures. France had fought the war on her soil, her lands had been devastated more than any other Allied power, the best of her industry had been destroyed, and her riches had been plundered. She had faced up to the might of her great foe once again, and she did not wish to fight a third round. To get a little bit deeper into this question, we should take a quick detour into an aspect of the First World War, which often receives scant attention, the question of war aims, their origins, and their significance to the later peace settlement. War aims changed a great deal over the course of the Great War. To put it in perspective, in 1915, the Russians expressed their war aims to their fellow allies, which would prove in the end impossibly ambitious, but which provide us at the same time with a last gasp of the Imperial Russia, which had stood for three centuries. At the top of the list, predictably enough if you know your Eastern question, were the Dardanelles and the realisation of Russia's dream to seize the Straits. This, of course, provided the answer to the Eastern question, which Britain and France had both opposed, as recently as the Crimean War in the 1850s, and Britain, of course, had been fighting a Cold War against the Russians right up until the point that the Entente was signed with them in 1907. 
1915, though, the demands that the Russians put forward were adopted, and Russia was now empowered with the promise of a grand prize once she was successful. Russia had suffered setbacks by 1915, that much was sure, but her might would surely triumph in the end. In addition to Constantinople, Russia wanted to see German borders adjusted, with Poland expanding to the west and coming under the Tsar's leadership, placing a buffer in the process between Berlin and St. Petersburg. While Russia pondered over rearranging Germany in its eastern regions and realising her Dardanelles dream, French military leaders considered Germany's position on the Rhineland and put forward a vision of their own. Within the first few months of the war, Ferdinand Foch, later to assume supreme command of all Allied armies in the final phase of the war, expressed his view that Germany should be confined within the limits of her national frontiers and that either the occupation of the Rhineland by French troops or the inception of the Rhineland as an independent state would help ensure this. To guarantee French security into the future, it was paramount that Germany be reduced in size, or at the very least, weakened considerably. By spring 1915, the political right wing of France had adopted the Rhineland idea as their own, thanks likely to Foch's political identification with that class and his sympathy with its newspapers. The right-wing press in France made several demands on the Rhineland which were held in common with the French army. The Rhineland must be neutralised as a threat, her people must either declare themselves French citizens or prove themselves content to exist in a state of neutrality. Additional plans and studies by French military personnel in spring 1915 built upon this idea. Not only would the Rhineland be detached, but so too would the Tsarland, while Belgium and Luxembourg would be factored into the French defensive belt. This was not enough for Joffrey, the French commander-in-chief by this point, though. Joffrey believed that the Artois offensive, which had just begun, would result in a stunning breakthrough, and he communicated his vision to his friend and journalist, André Tardieu. Tardieu was instructed to work with the Rhineland idea, in addition to the other German concessions, into an armistice document which would serve as the blueprint once Germany collapsed following the obviously successful Artois offensive. Tardieu was enthusiastic about the potential for French success, as well as the necessity of demanding such a high price from Germany. Incidentally, André Tardieu went on to become one of the most important delegates of the French at the Paris Peace Conference, and he played no small role in ensuring that the Rhineland, although it would not be detached altogether, would be demilitarised. Of course, in spite of what Joffrey said, we know what actually happened. The 1915 Artois Offensive brought the French over 300,000 deaths for over 4 kilometres of advancement, as we saw, and as Joffrey scoffed at this pathetic failure to realise his plans, not at all blaming his own failures of course, the talks with Tardieu were momentarily set aside. 1915 was also an important year for French diplomatic leverage, as the scales appeared to tip in favour of the Allies, with Italy joining the fray. Military optimism was matched by Joffrey's optimism when instructed to draw blueprints for a potential armistice in the near future. Written in late summer 1916, Joffrey added the imposition of Allied bridgeheads over the Rhine to his list of demands from the previous year. These are worth outlining and are covered by the historian Roy A. Preet in his article on French military war aims. Preet stated, the proposed peace settlement attached to the armistice proposal called for the return of Alsace-Lorraine and the French border of 1790, including Saint-Louis and Landau, which had pledged their allegiance to France in 1790. But for economic reasons, the plan also called for the annexation of the Coal Basin of the Tsar and two enclaves in Baden across the Rhine at Kiel and Germersheim to provide bridgeheads for the French. The Rhineland would be detached in order to protect France and Belgium against renewed aggression and would be constituted as two, three or four satellite states, depending on the wishes of the population. These states would be brought permanently within the French orbit by a perpetual customs union and a 31-year military occupation while their share of the indemnity was being paid, during which time France would exercise control over their finances, administration and foreign relations. The expectation was that the new Rhinish states at the end of the 31 years would request annexation into France. Those in the French army that opposed the outright annexation of the Rhineland into France did so for their own reasons. 
Although they claimed that nationalism made it impossible, it was believed that the fragmenting of the German Empire as it spat out Alsace-Lorraine, the Saarland and the Rhineland would make a lie out of the German nationalism which was taught in German schools. It would also guarantee that the Rhinelanders would pay the reparations as set down by the French government, which even by 1916 had been extensively detailed. Germany would pay 1.8 billion francs per year, up to a total sum of 60 billion francs. This sum was not overtly exorbitant, insisted the French command, since Germany had spent more than this on its army and naval budgets in 1913, and since, after the victorious war, Germany would be effectively disarmed, these sums would not be necessary to spend on the navy and army, so she could just give them to France instead. Incredibly enough, the French command had great plans for Belgium too, which intended to trade a firm French alliance and renunciation of French claims to Luxembourg in return to Belgian acquiescence to sharing its forts with France. Either way, French influence would extend up the Rhine and would be reinforced by the imposition of several fortified bridgeheads. As stiff as these terms were, the final document which was handed to Joffrey on the 6th of October 1916 reflected perhaps the very peak of French military optimism and an equally optimistic appraisal of its ability to turn back the clock. Predicting total victory on the battlefield, these officers and military bureaucrats produced a document which read something like a Napoleonic manifesto for reimagining the world. But at its core was a mission to return France to the position of European predominance by pulling the German Empire apart. Under this October 1916 plan, Prussia would be dismembered and the empire would be divided into nine smaller states, with Saxony, Westphalia, Hanover, Bavaria, Silesia, Hesse, Württemberg and Baden, each constituted as a significant counterweight to Prussia, which made the ninth state. That wasn't all though, as if more revolutionary ideas were needed. According to the French plan, this new Prussia would be a far smaller fish in this German pond. They would lose all their conquests since the time of Frederick the Great and be reduced to a rump state of 11.5 million inhabitants. Each of these nine German states would be allowed to select its own monarch, so long as it did not choose a Hohenzollern one, and so long as France approved of the choice, while the nine governments would follow the same rules. The new vision of Germany meant that only Prussia and Hanover would have navies, with access to the Baltic and North Seas respectively, and consequently this also meant that German naval strength would no longer be a threat. Prussia's immediate neighbours in Silesia, Saxony and Hanover would also be constituted as the strongest states, thanks to generous French support and they would serve to curb Prussian ambitions or quests for revenge in the future. As Roy A. Preet concluded, The total peace plan of the French staff in 1916 was thus remarkably aggressive. Reflecting the inflated optimism of the French command and their belief in total victory, it attempted not only to ensure French military security and economic prosperity after the peace, but, by shattering the unity of the German Empire, to return France to the favourable situation of a divided and weak Central Europe which prevailed in the heyday of French power. The French army was but little more self-denying than the German. For the record, these terms were modified and moderated somewhat in tone as time went by and new pressures emerged, and great difficulties in opinion among the French political and military elite remained where the treatment of Germany after the war was concerned. What was never up for debate was that France had suffered and some form of compensation should be expected for her troubles. The real question for us is how much impact these ideas had upon French attitudes towards Germany by late 1917 when Clemenceau came to power and the extent to which Clemenceau then played a role in exacerbating these demands or moderating them. Let's find out. Although French figures were disunited in their opinions of the terms which should be imposed upon Germany, all were one in the belief that victory and not negotiated settlement should be the outcome of the war. France would not fight for a ceasefire which did not promise security for her or defeat for Germany. France would only make peace once Germany had been defeated, and as a result, her leaders spurned all efforts to mediate, no matter how well-intentioned and no matter their source. Predictably enough, this made the French government wary of the power which offered to mediate more consistently than any other, the United States. 
1917 was a very difficult year for Allied unity. It bore witness to the exit of Russia and the entry of the United States, and in this process, French war aims underwent some scrutiny and adjustment. The year, which began with good grounds for optimism on the back of another offensive in spring, followed the familiar pattern by the autumn, and French war aims reflected this trend. By now, the country was exhausted. It was reliant on American loans and anxious at the impact which an influx of American soldiers would have on the French bargaining position. Again, another predictable development which emerged over 1917 was that, as French power slackened, American power filled the gap, and British leaders proved themselves content to defer to the Americans before their old French ally. French hopes that the Americans will not contribute too much men to the war effort may strike us as strange considering the end goal was victory, but we must also understand that the issue of influence was an important one in addition to winning the war. For its war aims to be met in full, the French government and the army felt that it was imperative to resist the interference of too many American military personnel. They had already been bothered by the frequent interventions by the American president, and they did not like to think of what Woodrow Wilson would attempt to do once he actually possessed the leverage on the ground to make things happen. It was only after the depressing returns from the 1917 campaigns that the French High Command accepted that it needed American soldiers to fulfil its strategic objectives. Indeed, the bleak picture for 1918 suggested that if France was not to be swamped by a rejuvenated German tide, she would have to sacrifice some influence at the peace table to the Americans. This was what happened, and although France was no longer strong enough to achieve the war aims set down in October 1916, Clemenceau was at the same time determined to not become a pawn of the Americans. French foreign policy honed in on Eastern Europe, largely because it was a fertile region for French influence to blossom without German or Russian predominance, and because the nationalism of the Czech, Polish, Hungarian and other Balkan peoples would make state creation far easier and more organic, it was believed, than a manual redrawing of the continent's borders. Let Europe be reimagined upon nationalistic lines, the idea went, and France would give its blessing where possible. This thought process ticked the box of self-determination, which Woodrow Wilson was still not completely sure about, but which didn't stop him talking about it, and it also provided a convenient way to box in Germany and isolate Russian Bolshevism. On the other hand, Clemenceau made it clear that he was sceptical about the feasibility of the League of Nations, but in conversations with the Anglo-Americans, he did signal his willingness to use the 14 points as the basis for an agreement, so long as the Central Powers were comprehensively defeated first. The walls were closing in on Clemenceau throughout the first half of 1918, though. He had been brought to the Premiership once again following the accomplishment of the unthinkable, that being the resolution of the 76-year-old's differences with Raymond Poincaré, which facilitated the previously thought impossible partnership of the President and the Premier. Well, maybe resolved was a bit of a generous term. It would be more apt to say that the circumstances of the time moved both men to put their mutual dislike for one another on ice for the moment. If he was to return to the Premiership, Clemenceau knew that he would have more than enough on his plate without also fearing a political betrayal, so he tried to play his cards carefully. His cold but productive relationship with President Poincaré continued, with the president eventually losing out to his wily premier come peacetime. Back in spring 1918 though, and one of Clemenceau's most urgent tasks was repairing the morale of the French army, which had been paralysed by mutinies and strikes by late 1917. This he could do in cooperation with Marshal Pétain, the saviour of Verdun, who was to acquire a very different reputation later on in life. With the aid of Pétain, Clemenceau approved the purging of the army divisions of colonels, brigadier generals and generals too old or too inept for active service, filling their ranks by promoting younger officers and improving overall discipline in the ranks by an intelligent distribution of penalties, rewards, furloughs and decorations. Regional civilian officials did not escape scrutiny or culling either. Many were retired or demoted, especially those that had not worked hard enough to curb defeatism. The dividend that Clemenceau received from these policies was considerable, but he had not been brought to the premiership merely to fix the French army, as Geoffrey Brune wrote. 
He was chosen because, in his previous ministry, he had shown courage in repressing strikes and sabotage, because he symbolized French hostility towards Germany, because he spoke English and had been one of the most important architects of the Entente Cordiale, because he had lived in the United States and might prove persona grata to the people of that great sister republic without whose aid France could not fight on. His specific task was to cement relations with London and Washington, to keep the Western Front, the centre of the Allied war effort, and to establish, if possible, a unified command of the Allied forces in France under the direction of the French General Staff. In January 1918, the British disassociated themselves with the French war aims of the left bank of the Rhine and the Tsar. Now, the British declared, only Alsace-Lorraine would be guaranteed, and even then it wasn't certain that a plebiscite would not preclude the handing over of those lost provinces first. This bitter blow and Clemenceau's refusal to commit to comprehensive peace negotiations, until the central powers were defeated, rubbed Woodrow Wilson the wrong way, as did Clemenceau's inbuilt scepticism regarding the League of Nations, which would later become even more of a problem. Still, though, Clemenceau did take solace from the President's appreciation for Eastern European self-determination, which was at least in line with French policy. Once the storm brought on by the Hindenburg-Ludendorff Spring Offensive passed in autumn 1918 and rumblings of German trouble grew, Woodrow Wilson in his turn grew fearful that unless the war was ended quickly, France might have the opportunity to wrest its expansionist war aims out of a defeated Germany after all. To avoid being bypassed in this manner, Wilson advocated dialogue be pursued with the new German government from the 5th of October, a back channel which continued through the month of October and culminated with Edward House travelling to Paris to meet the Allied representatives. By the time House touched down in France, Clemenceau had already decided what he wanted for France. Possessing the power to shape the peace terms effectively by himself, Clemenceau also listened extensively to the advice given on military matters by Ferdinand Foch. Foch had enthusiastically approved of the most punitive earlier measures, which would have brought Germany very low indeed. The Rhineland featured heavily on this list of demands, as did ideas about the Tsar and reparations which Germany would have to pay. The more shocking blueprint, written up by Joffrey's peers in late 1916, did not feature, largely because Clemenceau correctly suspected that Woodrow Wilson would never have consented to the dismemberment of Germany into nine separate states or kingdoms. It is not hard to imagine that Clemenceau regretted that this arrangement was impossible, though. On paper, at least, it would have brought German power to a new low. In practice, though, as Clemenceau was soon to discover, the German army was not broken, even if it had been dealt a decisive defeat. Short of an invasion, it was difficult to imagine France forcing the Germans to go back in time to a more decentralised era. Germany as a unified state was here to stay, but Clemenceau was nonetheless determined to exact a very high price. What Clemenceau learned over the coming weeks, amidst conferences and meetings with Foch and his political peers, was that Germany might well crumble soon, and that she was weaker than he had initially supposed. This gave him and his allies an opportunity to make more stringent demands, but Clemenceau found his initiatives blocked by late October, by Woodrow Wilson's desire to have his 14 points serve as the only basis for peace negotiations. When House arrived on the 26th of October, this point was reiterated again, and when Clemenceau sought to draw up demands of his own, House was heard to remind the French Premier that Washington would make a separate peace if the French insisted on too high a price. After all that France had been through in over four years, Clemenceau may well have felt it to be a profound insult that the American president believed he could dictate to him and to France. Yet, Miles away in Washington, Woodrow Wilson was gambling that the sooner Germany made peace, the more leverage the United States would have at the peace table, and the more able Wilson would be to inflict his peace plans upon the world. Germany, Wilson believed, was far more likely to agree to a peace sooner if the terms were not such as to promote a fight to the bitter end. What little bit of German strength that was left over had to be saved, then, if Wilson's vision for a harmless but still present Germany was to be realised. This made Wilson, and consequently House, very sensitive to any notions of punishing Germany, but this did not stop Clemenceau from trying. He pushed for the occupation of bridgeheads along the Rhine, and was aided on the night of the 30th of October by a peer who helped him draw up a new memorandum on the 14 points, which Clemenceau planned to present to House the next day, but David Lloyd George got there first. 
As we have seen and will see again in the future, David Lloyd George registered his dissatisfaction with the Freedom of the Seas article, and the Welshman managed to wrest approval from House to accept his reservations. The fruits of the preliminary peace conference over the 26th of October to the 4th of November contained a remarkable get-out-of-jail-free card for Clemenceau, as much as for David Lloyd George, the latter of whom understood that he would now be able to interpret freedom of the seas in a manner more palatable for British audiences. Of paramount importance for French interests, Clemenceau wrested from House the concession that the armistice terms would be overly harsh for Germany and would include a provision whereby Allied bridgeheads were established over the Rhine. Furthermore, questions of reparations were left open, as were questions of territorial adjustment in the East. These issues will be resolved in the final peace conference that would cement the peace as permanent. In return for these concessions, House was assured by Clemenceau that the 14 points would serve as the basis for a peace conference, even if the armistice terms hinted that France was not in a merciful mood. The considerable background which paved the way to Paris in early 1919 was filled with grand ambitions, harsh visions for Germany's future, and a desire for some justifiable payback. However, as the war went on, the French found that their ability to achieve their war aims weakened as their grip on the war slackened. The entry of the United States proved that the arrival of another entity ideologically opposed to the French post-war order was not so easily resisted. Certainly, Clemenceau was aware of the French weakness. He did not, as we have seen, push too hard during the preliminary negotiations with House. Instead, Clemenceau seems to have believed that by kicking the can down the road to the peace conference, France would be vindicated and its future secured. In addition, Clemenceau would also cast himself as the pragmatist, the sceptic of Woodrow Wilson's ideas, and the war leader who had taken control of the French war effort and brought France safely to the end of the conflict. Clemenceau, the father of victory as some called him, had won the war and he was equally confident that with some skill, he could win the peace. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.